Hello, I'm your host, Jordan King, and welcome to Radio Never Apart. Welcome to this new feature, which will be available each month as part of magazine Never Apart. Never Apart is a nonprofit organization in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, with the mission of initiating social change and spiritual awareness through cultural programming with global reach and impact. Never Apart hosts an array of events at their home base in the Mile End neighborhood of Montreal from seasonal exhibitions to film screenings, art openings, and lots more. To learn about Never Apart and what's happening and see the calendar of upcoming events, as well as artists' talks from those who have exhibited previously at Never Apart, check out neverapart.com. The focus of this new monthly podcast series is to highlight individuals and entrepreneurs in creative sectors such as art, fashion, and music, in particular, elevating LGBTQ voices around the world. We hope to celebrate collaboration between artists and creative professionals, look at sustainability initiatives within fashion, art, and music, including vintage curation, the online resale market, uh, and people who are doing both custom design as well as reworking vintage clothing, and also to explore intergenerational conversations which provide insight into the past of artists, creatives, and LGBTQ elders. Now, a little background on myself. I'm a Canadian artist currently residing in New York. I've worked as a makeup artist for the last 15 years in a very broad range of different areas, from commercials to fashion advertising to runway shows, editorial projects. Uh, the list goes on and is still being written. That's my career, and, uh, and while it's a craft that I truly love, for some time I've had a desire to share the stories of people that I have met in my travels, uh, as well as to learn more about individuals whose work I've come across online by sitting down to chat with them. On this episode of the podcast, I'm speaking with David Ilku, who I consider to be a very long time contributor to New York's alternative cultural landscape. Uh, David has been a long time part of the La Mama Theatre family and was a member of the iconic Dueling Bankheads. That's right. You currently hold a residency at Joe's Pub as a member of Unitard. Right, Unitard Comedy Group. <laughs> and you appeared on At Home with Amy Sedaris, which is Amy Sedaris' TV show, is that correct? Yeah, I was in season two twice and I've done one episode of season three which is shooting now amazing welcome david thank you for being here oh my pleasure okay so i would consider you a very very tried and true new yorker tell me about your journey to new york how long have you lived here and how did you get here i've lived here 40 years this is my 40 year anniversary wow and uh how did i get here? well i took a plane <laughs> um and went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and didn't know a single soul in New York. Wow. Um, I had like some American Express Traveler's checks and no one would take them. I was like <laughs> a sweet, innocent 18-year-old, didn't know anybody and trying to just find my way. Broadway was the only street I knew 
So I would just walk up and down Broadway, you know, because Broadway from, you know, it's a legendary course, street. Of course, chorus line. If I had a better singing voice, I would try to sing the that famous song from a chorus line. Oh, they, but, oh, but I, I won't. I oh, I was going to say, so they I say won't. the neon lights are bright on Broadway. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, and I, I stayed in a SRO, a uh, single room occupancy called the Latham Hotel. They had bulletproof glass behind <laughs> the bars of the windows and people crawling around on all fours in the lobby <gasps> because they were what? old. I don't know. It was like a dumping ground for senior citizens. And, and where in New York was it? Uh, 28th Street between wow. Madison and... Uh, would that be Broadway? Probably. So close to where we are now, because right now we're on 25th of Broadway, yeah, the Flatiron yeah, District. Could, yeah. Here at Metro Podcast Recording Studio. They've probably <laughs> renovated it, and it's all fancy now. But I'm sure, and they're charging three to $4,000 a month. <laughs> yeah, probably. For 400 square feet. <laughs> yeah. Um, had you been to New York before you moved here? Like, Did you come to visit, or did you... Oh, I think, uh, yeah, once uh, in 1976 during the bicentennial, uh, for some reason, my father and my sister and I came to New York, and I think we met my uncle, who is in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, and then I think we went to Washington, D.C. after that. It was a while ago. I was an angry 16-year-old. Oh, my goodness. Wow, that's hard to imagine because you're smiley, and now you're actively involved in comedy so you moved to new york in 1979 and you moved from michigan but um i mean i think one of the things that fascinates me that i love hearing you and nora and other people that i've known talk about is is just being drawn to new york at that time Uh, yeah but also kind of how terrifying it was (laughs) well there wasn't as much media uh back then so you you know you had like four or five channels on television yeah, and magazines. That yeah. was basically how you got your information. Um, so late at night, there was like, you know, Don Kirshner's rock concert or uh, the Midnight Special. You know, uh, there was American Bandstand. There was Soul Train. And, you know, I just mu- music sort of was uh, an outlet for me. And obviously the legend of Broadway, you know, yeah. Broadway. And, and so uh, 1979 was a very exciting year. I came of age in 1979. I turned 18. And it was like the best year of music ever. Yeah. Between like disco and funk and punk rock and just rock and roll and rap. Was, yeah, I mean, just it was just all exploding. And, yeah. You know, people still had to buy vinyl. Was it jarring to come from Michigan to like a massive city? Well, it was a little jarring because I was 18 and, you know, had spiky blonde hair and I didn't know anybody. I guess the first job I got was at the Peppermint Lounge bartending on 45th Street. I didn't know how to bartend and uh, the owner got so mad for the manager hiring me, he threw him <laughs> downstairs. Um, <laughs> but, you know... Hey, I was 18 and looked good. My biggest sort of watermark was getting a job at Danceteria, which sort of just introduced me to the whole lexicon of exploding young talent, burgeoning. You know, I was there when Madonna performed her first show and um, when the Beastie Boys performed their first show. And um, there was this thing called No Entiendes that my friend Howie and Anita 
Howie Montauk and Anita Sarko uh, did, was it every Wednesday, I think? Anyway, the, the, Howie gave me sort of my first break of just um, doing whatever I wanted. And Clark and I, uh, my dear friend Clark, who's no longer with us uh, in the physical sense, um, uh, we just, we were pals. We met doing an NYU film, and then he got me a job bar, bar backing at Danceteria. And, and, you know, we just, hit it off and started riffing and uh, making parodies and puns and jokes. And um, he was my first, uh, you know, first organic adult friend of my independence from my upbringing and my first comedy partner. So um, we just like clicked immediately and um, you know, when you can make someone else laugh and they can make you laugh, that's like the best, you know. So for people who might not know what Danceteria is, maybe they're not familiar with New York. Well, it was called the Supermarket of Style. Jim Ferrat and Rudolph started this club in the low, mid-20s on the west side. And then that got raided and then John Argento came along and then they amped it up and had four floors. It originally was three um, but when they added the fourth floor, that's when I got hired in like 82, I think. Um, and, uh, it just was one floor was for, um, enter, you know, bands, uh, live acts, fashion shows. It had a bar. Second floor was strictly dancing. Um, it was the dance floor with a bar and the third floor had a restaurant and video lounge. Uh, it was amazing. It was like, you know. It was incredible. It sounds incredible. So that's another one of the things, though, that I that I'm fascinated about of that time period is is that sort of real melting pot of punk. There's like a whole rockabilly movement. Yeah, punk and um, and disco, and then even um, like something called Danzarican music or whatever. It, it's more of like a, a Latin disco thing. Yeah. Um, and new wave, and, and new there was wave. little bits and pieces of all of it and, happening and in New York you at know, the time. Craft work, techno yeah. stuff, and you know, hip hop and and um, rap, and then also artistic stuff. You know, mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. Club Fifty Seven. Classic. Oh well, Club Fifty Seven. Yeah, the Pyramid Club. I did a play at Club Fifty Seven called Catatonic Baby. <laughs> I have. It was a musical. I don't even know. I can't even remember what. My role was. Did you write it, or you were you were had a part in it? I I had a part in it. And Club Fifty Seven was. So my understanding, based on the show that was at MoMA, because I had never heard of Club Fifty Seven before. Oh yeah, they had a retrospective. The retrospective of it, they sort of portrayed it as you know it was like a little scene and it's a laboratory. Yeah, and it happened in the basement of a church. Yeah, yeah, it was great, really fun, just so much fun. and it was Anita Sarko and Keith Haring and Ann Magnuson. Yeah, definitely uh. Ann Magnuson and John Sex. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I was really young, so I, <laughs> you know, and it was a little clicky, so I, you know, I, I had to play my cards right and go at the right time. Yeah. Know the right people. Yeah. Because it was, you couldn't get into certain clubs back yeah. then. Now, yeah. You know, they let any, there were like velvet ropes at every club. People took an hour to get ready back yeah. then in the 
early 80s. I mean, you just like, it was nothing to spend an hour. We made our outfit. We just got creative, and it was such a fun time. Tell me how you first met Clark. I answered an ad in backstage for an NYU film, and I sent it to the address. The address happened to be Clark's apartment, and Clark's roommate was doing the NYU film. I got the part. Um, I went and showed up on set, which was the piers. The abandoned piers were all the looky-loos and you know what was going on. I played a teenage runaway prostitute, typecasting, and Clark <laughs> was a drag queen drug dealer, typecasting. So at the time, I was working at Ted Hook's backstage, and um, which is a theatrical dinner uh, place in the theater districts, and he used to be Tallulah Bankhead's personal secretary. So he would run around and all the waiters would go dying, dying, and there was a big portrait of Tallulah Bankhead in the back of the restaurant. Wow. So I had that in my ear from working there, and then I say my line to Clark, can I have a quarter gram of Coke? You know, that was buying Coke. And he goes, a quarter, is that all? When I was your age, I had a shoebox full of that stuff, you know, cut. And I go, are you doing Tallulah Bankhead? Because the whole restaurant that I worked at was doing Tallulah Bank. And he goes, oh, yeah. And I go, oh, that's funny, because I work at this restaurant, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and then we just started talking. I'm, I'm from Michigan. He was from Michigan. You know, we talked about the TV shows we grew up uh, watching and music we liked. And, and then he invited me to come see him at Danceteria, because he was the cocktail waitress, Dixie Danceteria. He invented that job. He heard about the opening of this new nightclub, Danceteria. So they had a logo of a waitress. And it was from like a 1950s sort of diner yeah, almost. Like a, yeah, that like sort a of 1940s, outfit. 50s diner. I don't know if they named her Dixie or Clark named her Dixie, but they always had her with like a musical note over her eyes or something. And uh, he said, I'll be Dixie Danceteria, your cocktail waitress. And they, they loved it. So you can imagine, like, I, I meet this guy on a movie set, and then I go and I see him. It's this cocktail waitress in this old uniform at this amazing nightclub with all these amazing people. You know, but from Danceteria, working there, I just met so many people. My life started changing. I was in this performance art group called Anti-Theater Group or something. <laughs> and it was with Billy Idol's girlfriend, uh, Perry Lister, the mother of his child. And wow. Billy used to come all the time, and we would just sort of do crazy robotic mime dressed up as, you know, outer space vagabonds at Kamikaze, where Bruce Willis, the actor, was the bartender. He called himself Bruno. You know, hang, Billy would come and hang out, and he, he wasn't a huge star yet. You know, he had just come out of Gen X, and I think he released Dancing With Myself, and then he blew up. But, um, yeah, it was fun. You know, then I... I somehow got into a rock band. I was just singing back up and playing percussion, but okay. um, I remember looking out and John Belushi was standing right there in front of me. I was like, oh, it's John Belushi, okay. <laughs> I was so enthusiastic and excited to be in the band that I, I had black and blue marks on my thigh from uh, shaking and hitting the tambourine, you know, wow. so uh, vigorously. You know, I would, I would sing um, stuff at Howie Montauk's No NTN Days, and people be in the audience, and then they'd come up, and then I'd start working on songs with people, and um, one band would break up and then lead to another band, another yeah. band, and then um, 
um, Gene Caffeine introduced me to Dougie Bound, and then I went and auditioned for this band that didn't have a name, which became World at a Glance, and then we got signed to Island Records. So, you know, we're on, on tour and with Joe Satriani and on MTV and stuff like that. So wow. it went vinyl. Wow. <laughs> the album went vinyl. Which is what, <laughs> that's what used to happen before any of this YouTube nonsense. Well, uh, we were hoping out. it would go, w it w we would get a CD. CDs were just coming out wow. then. So we got a CD. Oh my goodness we gracious. Got, we, we were so excited. But now vinyl's worth more than CDs, so. I know, go figure. Go figure. And the t the cover, so I've seen one of the records that you were on or that you were a part of or shot by. David LaChapelle shot um, a bunch of photos for the record company but they chose to run it on the back. Somebody else shot the front oh, Okay, gotcha. Yeah. But he's on the back. I remember seeing the, the name credit anyways yeah. on, the, on the vinyl and yeah, your Yeah, he was center. a pal back then and I pushed really hard to get him the gig. Wow. So how did the Dueling Bank hits come about? So when Clark and I would hang out, we, he would, we would just start riffing in Tulula voice, you know, like, and he, he loved the movie Die, Die, My Darling. And so we would just, like, get stupid and say, oh, Miss Bankhead, how are you going to make your eggs today? <laughs> we would say, you must fry, fry, my darling. Because in the movie, Tulula says to Stephanie Powers, you must die, die, my darling, you know. It's, yeah, we would just do stupid stuff like that. And then uh, when we would work at the Pyramid performing and go-go dancing, we would start riffing in Tallulah voices, and people would start gathering around like with these big smiles on their faces and laughing. And you know, we enjoyed making people laugh. And then um, when Johnny and Chi-Chi started Jackie 60, they booked us to do a, an act, and we... That's the first place we did the Dueling Bankheads. Their second night, they were open um, at Nell's, which was a club called Nell's, who was Columbia Little Nell. Yes, from Rocky Horror Picture yeah, Show. Yeah, from Rocky Horror Picture Show. And that was like a hot spot in the 1980s and 1990s. Yeah, late 80s. Yeah. Early 90s. And, yeah. and tell me a little bit about Jackie 60 before we continue with Clark, because that is a whole cultural phenomenon unto oh, itself yeah jackie 60 was this nightclub that um was the brainchild of chichi valente and johnny dinell um and uh they are new york icons yeah. and legends mm -hmm. in their own right and um they go by mommy and daddy <laughs> to a lot of us <laughs> who have worked with them and under yeah. them and, and they are uh just gems just yeah. absolute gems um uh, just so creative and ingenious and just um sort of visionaries i mean jackie yeah, 60 was uh it was again it was another one of these laboratories you used the word earlier like club 57 and the pyramid club and jackie 60 were all these sort of performance laboratories real real laboratories and the spaces weren't that big um jackie 60 and uh squeeze box they would have shows and performances and then people would dance. And it was just so freeing. Dancing is very, very liberating. It's healing. Absolutely. It's healing. It's like church for me. So you and Clark became known as the Dueling Bankheads and that was a real phenomenon in New York all yeah, through the 90s. Through the 90s, yeah. We were on the cover of the Village Voice. 
We're in Interview Magazine. We're in Wigstock the movie. That was where I would have first um, seen you. Yeah. I saw that movie when it came out. And uh, we staged a fight with Debbie Harry from Blondie, um, a wrestling match where we ripped each other's wigs off. We came out singing Heart of Glass and sort of said, hey, anybody can sing this crap. <laughs> and, you know, I, uh, I called Debbie up to see if she'd be cool with doing it with us. I mean, she's just the best. I mean, come on. She's just like uh, so much fun. Such a such a beauty and a kook. She seems to have a good sense of oh, humor. Oh, she's about got a great sense of humor. We were going to have her come after us with an axe. <laughs> and um, <laughs> but we, Debbie and I took the big time wrestling um, approach and just ripped each other's wigs off. So. <laughs> So she ripped your wig off as well. Your yeah, thing she ripped wig. mine okay. off, and, and then we rolled around on the floor, and people thought it was real. They were, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what we rehearsed it, I said, okay, Debbie, you stand backstage, and when you hear us, you come out and start giving Bunny a hard time. Like, how? How? what are they doing? You know, like that. You performed in London, right, at um, Mark Allman's oh, yeah. club? Is that? Yeah, we performed, the Dueling Bank has performed at the Freedom Cafe, um, which was owned by Mark Allman um, from Soft Cell, and uh, that was really fun. You guys each brought something really kind of interesting. Yeah, I was kind of lucky because I could play both sides of the fence. Like I could, uh, my my inner weirdo, which is you know the goofball that I just am. I naturally, organically was drawn into the downtown New York performance nightclub music scene uh, but I could also put my foot in the door of going out on a legitimate audition for you know a Broadway show or a TV show or a commercial you know but sometimes my hair got in the way of that I used uh, hydrogen peroxide right out of the bottle slap it straight on yeah there it, you go you know, it wasn't about looking neat or good it was about like a style Gotcha. Okay. I love it. But that didn't always fly. And so acting was kind of a mainstay then, or that's been your mainstay since you've been in New York? Or well, was I guess it's sort of like a calling. Yeah. Um, you don't have a choice. Yeah. Um, uh, either you get it or you don't. Um, it's not always lucrative. Yeah. But it can be rewarding. And that, that, that was the great part about the downtown scene is you could create you didn't have to wait you didn't have to have an eight by ten yeah or or wait have a manager or an agent you just did it yourself yeah you know you, and and you just created a punk you just punked whatever you wanted yeah you know yeah. um you you or you took it very seriously you know i mean charles bush took a lot of his early stuff seriously i'm sure but it was so fun oh my goodness i can't thank you enough for being here today oh well we just scratched the surface i know a pleasure and thank you very much okay thanks david this is a new venture we would love to hear your feedback and welcome suggestions for future features and interviews please reach out with the word podcast in the subject line to info at neverapart.com with any feedback that you have. We absolutely welcome it. Until next month, this is your host, Jordan King, signing off.